today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles or your phone apps at home, uh, turn to Acts chapter 17. Or if you're here in person with us, you can look at your handout. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, and then verses 22 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. And my name is Steve. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors at Central. And it is an honor to be speaking on this subject today. It's not an easy one. And so, yeah, we are in the middle of a series called Ask Anything. And today we're going to be talking about Christianity and culture. And so here's your question that uh, should be on the screen. We live in times of global issues on every front including social justice, economics, racism, environmental problems, personal identity, and politics of every kind. Are prayer and sharing the gospel our only mandate, or should we take other action such as peaceful protest, 
writing MLAs, and opposing anti-biblical legislation. So the question, how can we live by the word of God in this world that expects us to be politically correct? So today I want to answer this, you know, in five sentences. No. This in itself should be a sermon series. You could do 10, 20 sermons on this because it's so huge. It's so complicated. But I want to to begin to answer it on the backdrop of last week's sermon. If we want to make a change in our culture, we desperately need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. But today, I want to break it up into three things. First, how do we understand these times? Second, how do we respond? And third, what do we do with the gospel mandate? So how are you responding? Well, this past Tuesday, I got home from work, and we sat down for supper, and, well, the presidential debate was on. Both Hallie and Maya were looking at me like, Dad, what is this? It sounds like two grown men fighting. And I said, yeah, actually, they are. And Maya's like, well, Dad, I hate politics. I said, honey, yeah, unfortunately, this is essential, but you're right. The way that they are behaving is not how God wants us to behave. In Walter Percy's novel, The Moviegoer, the main character says this. In fact, this hatred strikes me as one of the few signs of life remaining in the world. This is another thing about the world which is upside down. All the friendly and likable people seem dead to me. Only the haters seem alive. Only the haters seem alive. I think those words really do summarize how we feel right now. You know, we see this all over social media. You know, cancer culture, politics, fact-checking. Fact-checking the people who are fact-checking. You know, racism, justice, and it goes on and on. And then you add a pandemic, you know, fires and riots. And then Netflix, Tiger King, and Cuties, and we have 2020. Right? It's a mess. You know, someone even created an emoji for 2020 that sums it all up. Take a look, right? (laughs) So how are you responding? What do we do during these times? Do we respond with protest, silence, kind of just turn it all off? How should a follower of Christ engage this culture that so desperately needs Jesus? Well, first, we need to understand the times. I want to start with what is actually culture. 
Newbiggin says this, Culture is the sum total of ways living and developed by a group of human beings and handed from one generation to the next. In other words, our culture is the language, the arts, the technology. It's the way that we interact with one another. Theologically speaking, God created us and we created culture. And different groups of people have created these different groups and ways of living all across the world. When I went to Japan, I interacted very differently than I interact here. Same with Europe. Same with China. Each culture has developed this way of living. But Francis Schaeffer says this, Culture is this glorious rune, part glory and part rune. Isn't that good? So again, how do we understand these times, these times in which we are living in? They feel upside down. They feel like there's just more hate than life. Well, in order to communicate the gospel... We need to be students of our culture. We need to be students of our culture. I want to show you that's exactly what Paul did in Athens. Look with me at Acts 17, verse 16. And he says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. So just imagine this, you're sitting in a city and you can kind of see all of the idols that they have built. You know, walking in Rome, it, it was so vast, it was so huge, you, you just can't comprehend until you've been there. But the word provoked means that he was distressed. In other words, he didn't like what he saw. Why? Because the city was full of idols. Now imagine this. Even when you walk into a movie theater, you see all these posters up that are advertising what you can see, right? And I remember walking in once to a movie theater, and I was distressed by what I saw. Why? Because art is really an expression of what the culture believes. And right away, Paul realized that they are missing God himself. So let's, let's keep reading. Verse 17. So what did he do? He started to reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who have happened to be there. Some of them... Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and again, he conversed with them. So I, I want you to see that Paul saw that things weren't going well, that he was grieved by it, but he didn't just throw in the towel and walk away. What did he do? He started to engage them. He engaged the elites he engaged people who were walking in the marketplace. He started to have conversations with them. But what he also recognized is that all their gods and these idols represented what they believed. 
And he would have known that the Epicureans, these philosophers, didn't believe in life after death. That they believed that, you know what, there's gods there, but they're detached. It really doesn't mean anything. You know, they're, they're agnostic, is what we would say. He also recognized that the Stoics, yes, so intelligent, but they also believed that because of their intelligence, they would find the truth, that they would find their way into heaven, what we call that humanism. So Paul starts to engage and have conversations about all these things. But then he moves from the marketplace to the courts. Let's keep reading. Acts 17, 22. Look with me there. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So I want to pass along some of my observations. And then he says, I noticed this one particular idol. And under it, it says... The unknown God. So again, here Paul is. He observes everything that's going on. And he goes, ah, I see a problem. What does he do? He says, hey, guys, I noticed that you're worshiping an unknown God. But let me tell you, about a God that I know well. A God that can change your life. A God that can be known. Let me give you the gospel, the good news. And he does that by understanding their culture. He takes a moment to engage and have conversation. But notice, he asks questions to stimulate like things like critical thinking. He acknowledges that there's a different worldview and he enters into their world. He just doesn't come in and criticize them. But he builds a bridge into their culture so he can tell them about God. So how, how do we do this? In a world that is chaotic, in a world that we don't understand, well, notice that he makes an effort. He takes some time to listen to things from their vantage point. He, he enters into their framework. And he's, Paul is saying, we need to listen before we speak, before we counter but this means we're not laughing at people. This means we're not mocking them. We're not yelling at them. We're not name-calling. But we're coming into their world with the gospel. Paul does this by deconstructing their beliefs. And then infuses truth. But does it in such a way, again, that he builds a bridge. So right now, what are some of those main themes that are coming out in our culture? 
If you were to be a student of culture, what would that be? If you were to write an essay or a paper, you might say justice. Yes. Racism. Absolutely. Sexual abuse. Uh Uh-huh. There's just so many issues, so many massive things that are at the forefront that Christians can speak into. For example, let's talk about the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is a movement where women were urged to share about their terrible experiences about being sexually assaulted. And as a Christian, we agree that sexual assault is bad. It's a no-brainer. But it's an opportunity that we can speak into hurting lives and give them the gospel. But right now, another facet of this movement is the sexualization of children that is also being promoted on social media. Here's the thing. Last month, many of you got upset about this. This movie, Cuties, on Netflix, and rightfully so. You know, the synopsis is this. Amy, 11 years old, became fascinated with twerking, a, a twerking dance crew. Hoping to join them, she starts to explore her femininity, defying her family traditions. Someone else said that every adult involved in the production of this film should be registered as a sex offender. And as I was diving into this issue, trying to be a student, I came across what the director and writer said about her own film. She said, I wanted to make a film in hope that I was starting a conversation about sexualization of children. You know, the movie has certainly started a debate, but not the one that I intended. Why she is saying she agrees that sexualization of children is wrong, and then the fact that social media and everything portrayed on there is doing exactly that. I thought that was interesting. There's a bit of a commonality there in which we agree. However, a lawyer named Rachel Delhollander, a former sexual assault victim, said it perfectly. She said, one can't protest sexualizing children by sexualizing them. Do you get what she's saying? One can't protest sexualization by sexualizing kids. She's pointing out a contradiction in our culture. On one hand, we have the Me Too movement. We agree. On the other hand, our culture is divided on whether kids should be in the movie Cuties and whether it's okay. So this brings up the question, who is the standard? What is the standard? Why does it keep changing throughout history? And the answer is, it's because our culture needs a God-sized God. 
This is how we can start to understand what it means to be a Christian in difficult times. That God is our reference. God is our standard. God never changes. But our culture is constantly changing the rules. Which is why we need to infuse the gospel into how we live. This is what Jesus meant when he said we need to be in the world and not of the world. We do this by engaging people and having conversations. We find commonalities about what they believe and we infuse the gospel. That means that we we read what they read. And at times we watch what they watch and we listen to what they listen to. We use art and we talk about biblical ideas. And no, I'm not saying watch all the garbage out there, but I'm saying we need to open the doors of communication with our culture, even if they are hostile, because they need the gospel. We need to start by understanding. So as you can see, we need to be students of culture to communicate the gospel in a way that they can understand it. Well, secondly, how can we respond when it doesn't go well? How can we respond as a Christian? I think the bigger question is how do we respond to the lack of social justice, to all the economic problems? How do we respond to racism, to division in politics, to abuse? And I want to say that each one of these are, again, a sermon within themselves. But the simple answer is, we need to inject the gospel into every single one of them. I think the other responses, if we were to break it up and layer them, is yes, we need to start with prayer. We need to be led by the Spirit. We need wisdom. We need to speak truth in grace. But above all, we need to love. Look with me at Acts 17.32. Paul says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. In other words, no matter what happens, as you are infusing the gospel into conversations, some mocks, some will mock you. Before, some called him a babbler. They made fun of him. You the elites laughed at him, probably called him stupid. They said what he was saying was rubbish. And again, how do we respond when that happens to us? Well, we need to respond again with love. With love. Look with me at John, 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, as a Christian, it should be our number one way in which we reflect that we know God. 
But 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7 says it even better. It says this, If I speak the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Are you getting it? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Then jumping to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is this so important? Because no one wants to listen to someone who delivers a message without love. If you want to communicate that you care, even if you're right, you need to do it with love. Because when you're not loving, you're communicating something that is different than the gospel message itself. You're polluting it. You're putting up a barrier between you and the person that you're trying to give truth to. I mean, a quick example of this is me saying, I love you. Right? It doesn't match the message. I remember sitting and listening to John Stackhouse, who's an apologist who, does, who defends the faith for a living. And I remember him telling a story of him being in a debate with an atheist, and he felt like it was going really well. I mean, intellectually, he was winning. He could answer every question at the tip of his tongue, he knew the answers. And at the end of it, he's like, oh, man, I got this. And the atheist said, you know what? Even though you're probably right, I don't want to believe what you believe. You bleep, bleep, bleep. Because you're a jerk. And John Stackhouse said, as he learned a lesson, fundamentally, then apologetics is about winning the friend, not the argument. Apologetics, again, is about winning a friend and not the argument. So how do you respond when you're being challenged? When you're being made fun of? 
Are you loving? Which brings me to the next question. Should Christians get involved politically? Should we peacefully protest? Should we write our MLAs, especially when they oppose biblical legislation? Is this loving? Well, to be honest, the answer is yes and no. Mostly yes. But I think start with this. What is the Spirit of God leading you to do? Where is the gospel in all of this? Do you value being right over their need for the gospel? And are you working towards reconciliation with a culture that desperately needs Jesus? Or are you just adding to the hate? I mean, I, I see this on social media all the time. You know, there's this opposition. A Christian posts something, and a non-Christian engages it. And then the dialogue continues on. But most of the time, I don't see love. And it's just dismissed. So what should form our view of Christian protest? Well, the answer is, of course, Scripture. It should inform every area of our life. But it's just not that simple. Think about even what James 1.19 says. It says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. Romans 12.17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable and right in the sight of all. Or 1 Peter 2.7 says, Honor, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And even honor the emperor or our government. In other words, Christians have no place in a protest that turns into looting and rioting and violence. But when we do protest, it should be peaceful. It should be legal. Okay, if we were to bring in some historical examples, what about Martin Luther, who protested against the abuses of the Catholic Church by writing a thesis and putting it on their door? He changed the course of history in a good way. Why? Because he stood for his convictions. We would all agree that was good. Or Nazi Germany. The church was some of the first people to protest and to start to move against what was happening. And to be honest, the church didn't do enough in the beginning. It took too long. But at least the church eventually stood up and did something. Or what about William Wilberforce, who didn't actually rally, but he protested in a different way by becoming a politician, and he changed and ended slavery from the inside out. But he gave his entire life to ending slavery. 
Chriswell says this, Is the heart that drove Jesus to die for your personal sin and shame reflected in the emotion you show, the words you say, and the values that mold your approach to public discourse and protest? Is that same heart that was in Jesus driving this desire for change and how you go about it? So as you can see, we need to respond in love. We start by trying to understand and we love our culture. Lastly, is sharing the gospel and prayer our only mandate? Again, is sharing the gospel and prayer our only mandate? By the way, I'm glad you asked this question. First, let's start by what do we mean by the gospel? Are are we saying, you know, we just tell people about Jesus and then walk away? Well, let's look what Paul does here. Look with me at Acts 17.32. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, again some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. In other words, Paul just didn't go out preaching and then left everyone to their own demise. That when people responded to the gospel, they joined him. They became part of his church, part of a movement in which we call the kingdom of God. He was fulfilling the Great Commission. He was making disciples of all nations. And so is preaching the gospel our only mandate? Absolutely not. It is just the beginning. Our mandate is to bring reconciliation to a culture that desperately needs God. Ephesians 2.16 says it well. And he's talking about Christ here. He said, Christ will reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so the key aspect of being a Christian is the ministry of reconciliation. That is just not talking about the gospel. But it's inviting people into a life in which you are reconciled with God, first of all. That we too need to be right with God, and so does our culture. But secondly, we need to be reconciled with each other on this level. That we are inviting people into that kind of community, and we are made right with God, and even we are made right with each other. And that's exactly what the gospel does. This is the ministry of the church. And this is only done through the love of Christ. But God wants us to use the body of believers to bring this renewal to the many layers of brokenness in our culture. 
to individuals, to groups, to nations, and to the world. And often the church can become overwhelmed and we stop doing things. But what's one thing in which God can use you to bring reconciliation today? What's one conversation? What's one person? What's one issue that you can speak into with love and represent Christ well and start that process? You may be mocked. You may be belittled. But some may join you in this ministry of reconciliation. Van Gelder says it well. He says the church is not just a social gathering. God is present. The spirit is at work strengthening, convicting, healing, shaping, and encouraging persons as they relate in community. God's power is made evident as the community demonstrates a new type of humanity on earth. Spirit empowerment fellowship has a big impact on those who come in contact with this type of Christian community. Here's the thing. We we all know there's something wrong with our culture. You can hear the cries for injustice. You can hear the cries for things that need to be made right. And we all want that. But the Bible says that God will deliver true justice for all. But the problem is, in every single culture, there's injustice and something wrong. And every person that makes up a culture, there's something broken within them. Why? Because every culture is made up of fallen people. Let's talk about cancer culture for a moment. Cancer culture is when something is canceled, it's nulled, it's ended, it's voided, it's done, it's over, it's no longer wanted. Could be a TV show, a celebrity, or a subscription. But the basic idea is the person is canceled. They're no longer supported. We even see this among Christians. You know, there's a fight, there's a conflict, and rather than dealing with it and reconciling, you cancel the other person. We, we see this all over Hollywood. And sometimes we would say, you know, it's, it's good reason that Kevin Spacey got canceled. You know, Ellen DeGeneres is currently going through this. Because she's really not who she said she was. She had had this image of being kind. And the people that have worked with her are saying, actually, she's the exact opposite. It's one of the worst experiences ever. And there's this movement to cancel her. But the problem with cancer culture is that there is no redemption. The problem, again, with cancer culture is that there is no redemption. But then the gospel comes into this cancer culture and says, no, we need reconciliation. We need forgiveness. You need to be made new. 
Isn't that a better message? When I was doing youth ministry at my old church, this 15-year-old guy was brought by a friend, and he fit the, the typical stereotype. You know, he was, he was a big guy. He had this red bandana on. And all my youth leaders were like, whoa. He gave off that vibe. Another youth leader said, hey, um, Steve, you need to actually talk with this guy because he's brought a machete and some weed. And it's in his backpack. And there's some major concerns. I remember walking over to this guy to have this conversation. And to be honest, I was kind of freaked out. <laughs> this guy could easily have over, overtaken me. And so we, we kind of went into our office and we sat down. And rather than starting with the confrontation, I said, Hey, my name is Steve. What's your name? He's like, Oh, hey, yeah, my name's Jay. Some people call me Juicy Jay. Oh, right. Hey, why don't you tell me, uh, you know, what brought you here to youth? And, you know, tell me a bit about your life. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, a friend brought me. But to be honest, I'm kind of running from something. I'm like, what are you running from? Well, I've been involved in gangs. And uh, he actually took off part of his shirt and he was showing me scars from knife fights. He's, he's saying, you know, like, I've been really struggling with my life and connecting. Everything's kind of upside down. I, I feel like I'm just living in the hate. I honestly started to cry. And the Spirit of God said, keep talking. And I kept engaging him. And so I said, hey, at the end of the conversation, do you mind just leaving the backpack here? You're totally welcome to join us. He did that. Fast forward one year, he kept coming. At the beginning of the youth meeting, he would stand at the back. He wouldn't engage everyone. Everyone was afraid of him. A year in, he was part of us. We took him to camp, and he's, he's still a bit rough around the edges. And I remember the speaker saying, if you want to give your life to Christ, we're going to do that by picking up a rock and this rock represents your old life. And you're going to throw that into the water because Christ is going to give you a new life. And for some reason, I couldn't believe it, but Jay stands up. Yep, I want to give my life to Christ. And when I was walking with Jay, he's a, he picks up the rock and then he takes off his red bandana. And he wraps the rock with it. He says, hey, Steve, I don't think you realize, but these are my old colors. This is my gang colors, my old life. And I'm throwing that old culture away for that new life that he's talking about. And now we're both crying. But it just reminded me, what if I would have just canceled him right at the beginning? 
That there may be people in our life that we've canceled and we've put to the side that need Christ. They need to recognize that their old culture is is broken. This is what it means to be reconciled with God. That through this life of Christ, he makes these broken things right. That then we become people who do justice because we are in right relationship with God. This is what it means to be called to live out that profession in which he has gifted you to integrate into a culture that desperately needs Jesus. And this gospel calls us to repent, every one of us. But here's the thing. We can easily see the injustice in everyone else. But do you see the injustice in your own heart? If you do, turn to God. He has something better for you, a better life. I want you to imagine for a moment a church full of people who are continuously reconciling with God and one another. What would that be like? Imagine a group of people who are so in love with Jesus that the culture started to see a difference in us and couldn't help but ask questions of why we are so different. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we join in to this ministry of reconciliation where we right the wrongs, but we do it in love, but we start with understanding. That's how we engage this culture, a broken culture. How are you responding now? I'm going to call up the worship team. And I have some questions for reflection. And the first question is, are you in right relationship with God? Talk to him about it. Is there something in your life that you need to deal with before we take communion? The next question, are you in right relationship with others? Is there something that you need to let go of or talk about so that you can be reconciled? Third question is, who in your life do you need to share the gospel with? Who do you need to spend the time to listen to and understand their worldview and then enter in and give them Jesus? So in a moment, just bow your head and ask God to speak to you and ask these questions and and let the Spirit lead you to whom and what. And then we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And then we're going to take communion together. So let me pray. God, thank you today for a message, God, that can transform a culture and a nation and the world. And so God, help us to be people who are right with you, 
who are making it a pattern to reconcile with each other, but who are also speaking to the culture in love. So God, we ask that the Spirit would just move in our own hearts, that you would expose the injustices in our own, God, minds and the way that we think. God, that we would hand those injustices to you and that you would make those things right. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.